0: And formed a bunch of my scientific learning while I was in the southeast, because that's real deer biology there. I mean, you you know, it's not as you know, thousands of acres of corn and soybean fields, you got to dig in and do some real, real work down there.
1: Back to Southeast Whitetail. Appreciate you giving this week's episode a spin. We have a phenomenal guest on the line this week, Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. Um, phenomenal resource. I, I've been following him for years. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know about him. Great guest. And I've just been, been completely blown away. He accepted this invitation for this interview. We talked about it a lot and, um, you know, we kept it short and sweet. And I try to, I I tried my best to keep the questions really geared for this time of year and what hunters in the Southeast need to know and need to focus on as far as where to hunt, how to hunt, and deer behavior. Because, in my opinion, and I know I might be beating a dead horse at times when I talk about this, but, you know, how to kill a big buck isn't necessarily a discussion about how to fill a buck tag, it's not necessarily a discussion about where the buck beds and this and that. It's about deer behavior. It's about the biological behavior and the science behind the rut because the deer are going to do, for the most part, the same things every year, about the same time every single year and it's how the species survives. And when you understand that behavior, that's when things start clicking and that's when you start to see more deer, more bucks, and you can start to fill more buck tags when you learn the behavior. Um, we talk about uh, the, the first and early signs of a doe going into heat, um, how a buck reacts, scrapes, rubs, you know, human scent, the moon, and everything in between. It's a great conversation. I loved it. Um, and, you know, this is one that I will definitely be playing when I'm on the farm, uh, excuse me, when I'm going to the farm this weekend to get hyped up for the hunts and to really kind of listen back. because I mean, this is one of these episodes where you're going to, you should take away multiple, multiple points and ideas, um, you know, good takeaways that you can implement wherever you hunt. It doesn't even have to be in the Southeast. Um, speaking of the farm this weekend, I will be out there hunting. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's been, I think, two weeks since I've been there. Um, and we've got some uh, two really great special guests coming in. It's a young man with cerebral palsy and uh, a woman that is, is going through, unfortunately, cancer. I believe she has stage four cancer. And we are um, bringing them in to hunt and trying to get them on some deer. So this is, this is what really makes, you know, a lot of what we do when we just bust it year round is, is, is to share the land. Uh, with other hunters so looking forward to that hopefully i'll have a uh a, you know a recap after this weekend a, a big congrats to my father harry haslam he um shot a very nice buck this past weekend saturday he was hunting a clear cut and that buck was just milling through cruising through and stopped to feed and that's you know that's just that's that's a, just a classic way of way of, of how he has uh, routinely killed bucks of the years, and that's where I get my love of hunting cutovers. It gets overlooked a lot, but cutovers are phenomenal right now. that That site was cut uh, back in January of this year. The vegetation is already high. Uh, deer feel safe in it. It's plenty of food and forage for them. And as it, as we move towards the end of the season, starts so getting like colder. Uh, deer will bed in cutovers in that cold weather bedding when, when they want that sun on them. So get out there and hunt them, scout them. And if you don't know how deer utilize a cutover, sit on one, put up a tripod, climb on the edge, do something and watch and see how deer utilize a clear cut site. You'll probably be surprised. So, with that being said, let's go right into it. Dr. Grant Woods. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome, Southeast Whitetail. I'm Mark Aslam, and I'm extremely excited to have on the line today, Dr. Grant Woods. Dr. Woods, thank you for being on the line today. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. I, this is—I've been very much looking forward to this interview. And um, before we get started, can you tell the audience? I mean, I, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know who Dr. Grant Woods is, and I'm sure you followed his work and and followed Growing Deer TV. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe the people yeah, that um, I, I, have been living I, I, in our rocks?
0: Yeah. I'm talking to you today from Southern Missouri here in the Ozark mountains. And I was raised in the Ozarks and deer were really rare. Matter of fact, there were no deer in the County I was raised in. And I don't know, I, I wish I knew, but I heard in the barbershop or my dad told me there's something, they're going to restock some deer in the, in the County where our little farm, little hundred acre farm was little, little rock farm with a little bit of corn and cows and pigs on the side, I guess. And, and, uh, I was in first grade, I remember this part really clearly, and it was cold right before Christmas break at school, and I had a little trap line. When I, when I say trap line, my dad and I would take scrap barn wood, old barn wood or something, and build little rabbit traps. And I would place them around our finch rows and whatnot. And, of course, I thought I was a Yukon trapper, you know. I had my homemade bow and some Western auto flu-flu arrows, and I'd run my trap line, and it was snowy. And one morning, I, I finished my chores, and I was running my trap line, and I found a female fawn in one of our little fields that had been shot, and from that moment on, I've been, that was the first deer I ever saw in my life, was a poached deer, Mm. and I've been passionate about deer, and really, really dislike poachers, trespassers, lawbreakers, people that abuse wildlife, and I'm the first guy in my family to go to college, and I just, you know, I'm 61, and guys my age when they were boys wanted to be in the army or a fireman or a policeman, all honorable professions. And still to today, I just wanted to work with deer. The term deer biologist wasn't a term that at least I'd ever heard. Uh, I just wanted to work with deer. I didn't know what that meant and just kind of fumbled my way through college and kept going, ended up at University of Georgia, great school, a lot of my good friends there and and uh, Clemson University and actually lived in South Carolina for about I I met some Southern bale down there somehow and got married along the way. So (laughs) stayed in South Carolina. I think we're there, I don't know, 14 years, something. Lived by Abbeville, between Abbeville and Greenwood, South Carolina. And of course, hunted north, south, east, west, hunted mountains and hunted coastal plains. Spent August 15th up a pine tree somewhere on the coast every year. So just really have many great friends in South Carolina still and formed a bunch of my scientific learning while I was in the southeast, because that's real deer biology there. I mean, you, you know, it's not that as you know, thousands of acres of corn and soybean fields. You got to dig in and do some real real work down there. It's
1: there's definitely something special about the southeast uh and whitetails. Um and there's definitely something special about the southern bells down here. Like you said, I I found one myself. Um but yeah you you what you just said you you were all around us It, it – our farm, uh, Greenwood's, a couple hours north of us, and I was out there. I wasn't out there August 15th, but I was out there August 23rd that week. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do it because the season's open.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Blood. It's silly to be setting up a pine tree and it's 100 degrees and mosquitoes are horrible and you know it's silly, but season's open, so you got to go, right? That's right. You know, I, I
1: I I've been telling my wife past couple years since we've since since we've had kids that um i like hunting early before the football season because she we like to go to a lot of college football games yeah And we do a lot of things in the fall like this past weekend so if i can hunt early in august you know fill a buck tag get that monkey off my back then um you know we took the kids to a pumpkin patch and all that job this past weekend so
0: sure yeah
1: yeah, you well, you have quite the extensive background. And anyone, anyone listening, to, if if you don't follow Growing Deer TV, he's Dr. Grant Woods is phenomenal. And that's why I'm so excited here. Well, um, if you're ready, I'd like to dive in this first question. Sure. Um so we are at least I can't speak where you are in Missouri. Although I have hunted in the Ozarks, I I, I, hunted, I went I've been a couple times, two different years all over Missouri hunting public land. But mm-hmm. anyways, in the Southeast, Georgia, South Carolina, most of the Southeast, we are trending towards, the, you know, pre-rut kind of gearing up for the ruts. I know mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of the coastal areas, are, you know, very close to the coast. They are a little more further uh, yes. along th- than we are anyways. So I say all that with, with this. People out right, near, right now hunting, okay? It, are there any visual signs... If you're watching a doe, you're watching a doe feeding, going down a trail, you're just hunting, you're watching a doe. Are there any physical signs on the doe or any kind of behavioral signs that would that a hunter could realistically pick up on that she might be getting close to going in? Yeah, heat?
0: being receptive, yeah. I'm not aware of any physical signs. There's not going to be leakage or anything like that, but I think there's certainly behavioral. And as a doe gets very close to, and if she's this close, there's usually a buck near her, but seems a little nervous, uh, a little twitchy. Uh, often her posture will be a little squatted. It's just not that direct, real proper standing doe. Uh-huh. Uh, but again, yes, when you get to that point, when when there's any hint of the doe being receptive chemically that that scent is going to be in the air and there's going to be you know some boys wanting to go to prom around there somewhere there's going there's going to be some bucks tagging around so before that I don't think so and remember this is a short thing A doe's receptive for about 24 to 36 hours and it would be very inefficient if she was getting off clues hey I, I'm going to be receptive in a couple of days the bucks would be pestering her and following her and not tending to does that were already receptive. So from a survival point of view, that would be the opposite of what would be a good strategy.
1: That makes a lot of sense, you know, biologically why they would do that. So when you see young bucks, you know, bumping does and just kind of bugging the does, is that just... Can you just explain that? Like when a young buck is a
0: deer, they don't know, they don't know what they're doing. It's like a freshman at high school prom being awkward, trying to ask the varsity cheerleader out. I mean, they they don't know what they're doing. They're just see a doe. You're often see, if you think about this, you're hunting a a food plot or a, you know, a two-year-old clear cut, something that's attracting a lot of deer. And you've been going there and every night there's a, you know, a gob of those fawns, whatever pouring in there. And probably a bunch of young bucks. And those young bucks are nudging does around and whatnot. You don't usually see a lot of mature bucks chasing does because they're in the timber or a real thick area with a receptive doe. And I think one of the common misguided tactics or approaches hunters have is they go manage to rut wherever they're hunting. Excuse me. And this old food plot, boy, my choke camera is showing 20 does not coming in here. I'm going to sit there because they're probably a buck around. And if you're wanting to kill a a mature buck or a buck, that may not be the best place to be because research has shown that when adult does, mature does become receptive, they often separate from their fawns and go off by themselves or use a different portion of their home range. So when you're seeing 20 does, again, it just doesn't make sense. When you're seeing 20 does, they don't want to be pestered by a bunch of bucks. And it just makes sense for the receptive doe to separate herself from the herd. And one of my favorite rut hunting strategies is to hunt a thicket, a pretty large thicket, where I have visibility, 10 acres, something like that. Clear cut in the south. Here, I've cut a bunch of cedars and burned and whatnot. And get on the opposite ridge, I'm in hill country, mountain country, where I can see into that thicket. And oftentimes, receptive does will come in there. And this is my theory, not science, but my theory. They like those real brushy areas so they can kind of get something between them and the marauding bucks, because there'll often be, if you're in a balanced deer herd, there would be three or four bucks trying to chase her. And the dominant mm. buck will close the distance. Whitetails are not territorial. Does are territorial when they're fawning. The, the most superior doe, the biggest doe, biggest body-sized doe, will get the best fawning habitat and on down the list. So a lot of female fawn fawns. Don't survive because they're trying to fawn in marginal habitat. Uh, bucks are only territorial. Dr. Larry Marson, one of my professors there at the University of Georgia, wrote a paper with some of his grad students called facultative territoriality, which is a big word just to say the only ground a buck is going to try to protect, they don't make scrapes to mark their boundaries or territories. That, that's not true at all. The only ground that buck's going to fight for is about 30-yard circle around receptive dough. He is not marking his territory. That's a waste of energy. They're not predators like grizzly bear wolves. They're not marking their territory.
1: Yes, yeah, sir. And I, I, one of your recent posts talked about that. Uh, it was a post about yeah. rubs, and, and I, I did enjoy that. So you, you mentioned something about a doe's home range, and, and it made me think of this question. Will a doe, when she's receptive, or, or, or rather, will a doe during the breeding season for any reason leave her home range?
0: Not often. I mean, there's always exceptions. Cows chase them, you know, whatever, but deer are most comfortable in their home range. They know where the coyote dens are, the hunting stands are. Deer pattern us way better than we pattern them. The danger points are when, and this has been shown by numerous different GPS studies, but even a a lot of hunters think, boy, that big stud, mature buck, he's roaming the county, breeding all the does. That's (laughs) human fantasizing, right? That's, that's, That's not reality. Even a big, big mature buck, when they get out of their home range, they tend to be very nervous, and you'll see a squiggly pattern going out, usually chasing a receptive doe during the ruts when this usually happens. And you know, the doe's home range is here, and the buck's home range is here, and they overlap, you know, whatever 10 20 percent, whatever it is. Uh, and they get together, and the doe's going back to the center of her core area or home range, the buck follows her in the squiggly line. And after 24 or 36 hours, it is a straight line back through apartment complexes across the river, whatever, because he's scared. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if you drop me right now in the middle of Ukraine or Afghanistan, (laughs) I'd be getting back here to Missouri any way I could. Right. I, You know, I wouldn't be sightseeing or willy nilly. That's right. Mature deer, they don't have the energy or time to willy nilly. They have a a mission. That's right. And they're must in their home range
1: one last question about does and, um, this upcoming rut that we're all excited for. Um, I've thought about this, um, almost every, almost every season. Uh, we've got a skin and shed at our property, mm-hmm. which, um, if anyone doesn't have that, 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 that is just a game changer, having yeah. a place yeah. on where you skin the deer yourself because, because you'll learn a lot about your deer anyways. Going back to my first question, are there visual when I'm someone shoots a doe, are there physical signs when I'm skinning it out, cleaning it that I would know has she already been bred? Um, there's times where I think maybe, but I just in where I'm getting yeah. at.
0: Is yeah, a there cool is. Uh, so you know. It's relative. Matter of fact, I'm going to be rude and turn around here, but you mentioned Joe Hamilton off there. Joe and I are close friends, known Joe for decades. Joe developed, this is called a fetal scale. And Joe developed this long ago in South Carolina. And I'm going to butcher this because it was decades ago, but I think they had 70 plus or minus Mm -hmm. does in captivity and a buck, and Joe would take this buck down runs or between the fences, between, you know, the, 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 it was a research facility, it was set up for this, and mark when each doe was bred, and then those does were euthanized later on at different periods. So he knew exactly when the doe was bred, it was controlled, he, you know, let the buck in for a few minutes, bring it back out, whatever. And they were able to measure those fetuses you know, at one month, two months, three months, whatever, and so Joe developed his fetal scale, and I'll get a little closer to my camera. You can see a little more definition. Yeah. So you harvest a doe in December in South Carolina. It's probably going to develop fetuses, and you lay it on the scale, and you can you can backdate. There's a nice thing on the back of it, and you can backdate oh, that doe was bred October 18th or whatever. It's the same thing. You mentioned you got a couple of kids. You and your wife probably went to a doctor and had an ultrasound and they're measuring crown to rump of that fetus, and they're gonna mm-hmm. say, Hey, y'all are probably gonna deliver XYZ. Well, you can date forward because the, the conception, the gestation period for humans is pretty well known. Within a few days, there's a little bit of variance, but it takes X number of days for a fetus to develop and be born. Okay. Same thing's true with white tails, it's about 200 days. Gotcha. So, If you know the doe was bred, Joe knew the doe was bred on a certain date and he let some of them go all the way to maturity and those fawns be bred, but born, excuse me, then you know the length of gestation. And if you harvest the doe like hunters do in between and you remove the fetuses, that's an obvious sign she was bred, the fetuses are in there. You can see when the rut really was, when breeding, excuse me, really was on your property. So to take that further, I've worked in South Carolina a lot. I've worked all over New Zealand and Canada. We had a project years ago in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. And for 30 years, they'd not allowed any doe harvest. That's hard for a southern hunter to understand. Ooh man. Zero (laughs) legal doe harvest on an 18,000 acre international paper lease back in the IP days. and, And they'd ate theirself out of house and home, literally out of house and home. And I begged the state, got a permit, and on this 18,000 acres, I wanted to harvest 100 does. And I mean, I was cussed and threatened, and threatened to be beat up a little. That's just like killing a sacred cow. Yeah. And this club had feeders right by the lodge because everyone wants to see deer every afternoon. These were skin and bone. i do not survived the winters up there. High mortality rates, really high. Snow would be six feet deep. Really high mortality rates. And so the state would only give us archery permits, but the deer were so conditioned to come in these lodge, hundreds of deer. It, it was gross, very unhealthy for the deer. That, okay, the you know the caretaker, you keep feeding as normal, but this Saturday, we're going to line the woods. These deer were so conditioned to the humans. We're going to line the woods and launch arrows when they come to you to feed. This was so bad. I, I took a few does and missed one, I don't mind admitting, and ran out of arrows and went and got my arrow and lost again. That's how many deer were coming in.
1: Mm.
0: And we removed our quota of does. And did this a few years in a row, and I'm taking data from every deer. Age, body weight, sifter, bred, all this stuff. We were only harvesting does. The bottom line is we shifted that mean breeding date 30 days earlier, because they had harvested bucks only for so long and not harvested does and they shot any buck that moved so the age structure and the sex ratio was way of balance there was really no fawn survival because when a doe is bred late in that world the fawns obviously still 200 days gestation the fawn is born later and there's not much time to gain weight for that harsh winter sets in and they die so really really low recruitment and we actually shifted that herd around grew big bucks uh, shifted around. There was a lot higher fawn survival weight, even though it had way fewer does on the property. But the does chances of having a fawn live a year old increased much. And by having fewer deer, we could grow more native vegetation, which allowed us to grow bigger deer. Anyway, so you can shift in the South. That's not much of an issue usually, but in those harsh environments, you can shift back to where God meant that peak of breeding to be.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, that that um, that's a that's an excellent point. I need to get one of those fetal scales. I've seen NDA, one I somewhere. Sells,
0: National Deer Association I think sells, them. other companies do, but I think NDA sells these.
1: And that's why it's so important to keep data and to you know ask questions and look at the deer that you shoot, especially the does, because that'll tell you when you know the peak breeding is actually occurring.
0: Yes, um, but look, can we can we chase a rabbit right there? Oh, sure, yeah. All yeah. hunters say, "Man, I want to hunt the peak of the rut." When's the peak of the rut? That's when I want to take my vacation. No, you don't. Right. You want to take your vacation a week before the peak of the rut. Exactly. Let's okay. define the peak of the rut as when the highest percentage on that curve of does are receptive, and and a buck's going to tend to doe for twenty-four to thirty-six hours. We're talking averages based on data. There's always exceptions you want to go when about 20% of the does are receptive. So the bucks are cruising more hours of daylight trying to find a receptive doe. The pre-rut is when you really want to be hunting and you want to nudge that pre-rut as close to when the rut, let's say more than 20% are receptive because once a whole bunch of does are receptive, that buck's bedded up in a thicket tending that doe. So the pre-rut's rot really drives me.
1: That's an excellent point. I, I, right now is when I really prefer to be in the woods. I, I shot a buck back in August, so I'm not, you know, I, I'm not really hell bent on going after one right now, but this is the time. and in, in fact, next week, usually about the 15th, the 15th or the 20th at our farm in South Carolina is when we see, start to see a lot of big bucks. Hunters seeing them, they're moving around, um, showing themselves more i prefer just like what you said i don't really prefer right smack in the middle of the rut when they're chasing because i mean where we are in the southeast it's so dense i mean there's just there's the deer are everywhere we're, we're in a high deer density area and sometimes i mean you, you know you can sit all day but you can put yourself in the best position but you're just you know the the deer are doing their own thing and they're breeding and they're chasing and it's just um to me i think i feel like there's a lot more luck involved when you're right in the middle of that as opposed to like right now i tell
0: people like you you have your own land to hunt i'd rather hunt my own land pre and post rut early pre early pre and post because deer on a pattern i'm now food cover food cover food cover and if you do some habitat work you can create bottlenecks and create some really good hunting if I invited you out to my place or, hey, I'm going to meet you out in Kansas or we're going to hunt some public land, then we'd be better to go in that late pre-rut when the bucks are moving the most hours during daylight because we don't know where we're going. We don't know what the bottlenecks are. We're we're just, you know, looking for some sign and climbing a tree or shinning up next to a tree or something like that. So I tell people all the time, if you're hunting home turf, you want to go when deer are on a food cover, food cover pattern. If you're going on a travel hunt, You want to go when they're when they're willy-nilly chasing does and you're just you know trying to see down the right of way or in big pinch point or something just hoping a deer goes by you
1: makes a lot of sense um all right let's transition into scrapes if you if you will entertain this for me scrapes get a lot of attention especially right now scrapes get a lot of attention from people starting in last month in september um let's dive into scrapes if you will as far as who's really really visiting scrapes and you know when i mean i've read the articles about when you know statistically when bucks visit scrapes but are does aren't does visiting scrapes
0: yeah as much as bucks so i did my master's thesis on scrapes um was just man i you know missed two years of hunting because i was collecting data (laughs) all the time and uh Button bucks are probably the most frequent visitor to scrapes. They're young, dumb, and curious. They don't really just think think about a button buck like a freshman in high school, freshman in college. They're not smart enough to look for danger. They just go do what they want to do. And that's a button buck and or in yearling buck. And so they're going to pour right into scrapes and not really be worried about coyotes, or bobcats, or Billy Joe Bob up a tree or whatever. Uh, and they spend a lot of time in scrapes because it's a curiosity thing. It's scent. It's a scrape to me, I guess now is a mobile phone, but I look at it more as the old phone booth. If you're old enough to remember phone booths, they were stationary, they didn't move, but that's where various people went for communication. So a scrape is just that communication point for that corner to block, if you will. That's what a scrape is. And all members of the deer herd, bucks, does, and fawns use it, and they don't defend it. It's not like one buck defends it over another, and they're not marking territory. It's just a communication point. The overhanging limbs probably the most important part of a scrape. And this was quasi research I, when I was doing my master's on different parts of scrape behavior. There's this logging road I did on public land, and there was a logging road run through a bottom, and there's happened to be ten scrapes right down this logging road. You know, I don't know every fifty yards, every hundred yards, or scrape, whatever. And I scrapes are really new. This was decades ago, and people are, had all these ideas and theories about them, so. I took plastic bags in and wore rubber boots, whatever, and in hindsight, probably none of that made any difference because we're breathing or respirating and we're leaving our scent wherever we go. You can't get over the respiration thing, which is the nastiest thing in our body, right? Our, our mouth is just full of bacteria, uh, which, by the way, one of the best things you can do is use a good mouthwash before you go hunting. That's probably one of the best things you can do besides set still. Setting still is the best thing you can do, and mouthwash is probably the best, second best thing you can do.
1: Mouthwash,
0: mouthwash. You want to clean your mouth out. Yeah, that's your, that's your big that's your big source of odor. You're breathing every step. Yeah,
1: I, I, I mean, I think about that all the time. And people use scent spray and all the scent stuff, and yet there's breathing out. Um, it makes sense. I, I've never done anything for it. I mean, I mean, well, if I, he, I got
0: this one buddy. He is, you know, a deer maniac. And he developed, you just don't know some of my friends. He (laughs) developed a two-liter bottle full of carbon powder. And and taped it, you know, taped the respirator mask, whatever. This, I'm not gonna go into detail, this very cumbersome apparatus. And and he would see a ton of deer. Unbelievable. And then I had another Hmm. friend in the upstate by Sparkbird, South Carolina, a dear friend. This is a very sad story. He passed a, last year, I believe it was, of cancer. He's the best, most successful hunter I've ever known in South Carolina. He would kill, It's, of course, legal in South Carolina. 100 dollars a state. Killed about 15 bucks a year. He killed in the mountains, killed in the plain, killed in Piedmont. He had a homemade climb stand made out of conduit pipe. I don't know how the guy did not Ooh. die climbing a tree. Conduit pipe. <laughs> and he was scared of heights. He would climb about 10 feet at the max. But many days, I could touch the bottom of his stand. He preferred climbing pine trees. So you're thinking this guy can't kill a deer. And he was a horrible chain smoker. That's that's in fact cancer killed him. But he smoked, you would always tell what tree he set in. This is crude. He would put his cigarette butts out in the bark, and there would be, he'd smoke 20 or 30 during the hunt. There would be a ring of cigarette butts on the side the tree is facing. He never considered the wind. Never was even a thought. And he would keep his bow and his clothing wearing his old Chevy truck in the back part of it. Everything he had reeked of cigarette. I don't think there was any human smell to the guy. Literally. His breath, mm. his clothes, his bow, his arrows. I loaned him some gear one time and he lost it in his truck for about a year, really. It was a slob. He lost his truck for about a year. And when, when he gave it, found it gave it back to me, I did not want it. It reeked of cigarette smoke. <laughs> I mean, reeked. And he was the most successful hunter. But with a bow, he killed 15 bucks a year mm, in wow. South Carolina, three-year-old or older, in the mountains, in the coastal plain, mainly on public land. He was not a wealthy man. He was a tremendously skilled hunter. And he had good woodsman skill, but he just didn't get busted. Deer just did not smell him. Didn't smell his clothes, mm. didn't smell his bow. Not worth it, right? I mean, he died. Don't go, kids don't go chain smoking, say, I'm gonna be a great deer hunter. It's not worth it. Uh, so I think our odor, especially our breath, is a big thing. Uh, scrapes are very important, and I use them. And, and so scrapes are kind of like the pre rudder rut. So you go along, there's a few scrapes marked at the edge of, you know, fields and fence row edges and whatnot, and then there's more. And then those travel corridors start lighting up with scrapes, and there's a lot of action. And that's telling you there's activity there, if nothing else, right? That's what we use before trail canvas. And then you start seeing five right in a row and a crossing five this way, five that way. You need to be hunting there. And then you get to that magic stage when there's about 20, 25% of those receptive and the scrapes leaf over. They just go dead. Yeah. Okay. And there's no need, you know, once the prom starts, you don't call and ask for a date. You just go to prom and try to get a dance. (laughs) <laughs> and once we get to about 20 25 percent dose receptive, there's no need attending to scrape that's just wasting your energy. you're just walking with your nose in the air trying to find a date.
1: That makes sense. So um, dose you said that I mean, we know that dose visit scrapes and I've got some cameras right now cell cameras on, on some scrapes now yeah. are they are they do they visit scrapes more at pre-rut? when they know they i mean are, are they visiting scrapes to check on bucks or, or is there no, we anything talk that i mean
0: we, we is it just
1: curiosity we or
0: can't, we can't talk to deer we don't know that right okay right we, anyone says they know that is fibbing right you don't know for sure you may you make assumptions based on the data at hand
1: what's your so theory you
0: can't talk to them so we do know that's a source of communication. Bucks are using their preorbital glands and their forehead gland and certainly using their mouth and their saliva and their nose and they're urinating and scrape sometimes and definite, defecating in scrape at times. And does will urinate in the scrape and they will certainly smell the overhanging limb. They don't seem to manipulate it or lick it. Mm-hmm. They seem to be taking scent from it. Again, this is an assumption, but they're not, all in their mouth, like bucks tend to be. They seem yeah. to be taking information from it where bucks are leaving scent. They're physically mouthing it or rubbing their pre gland on it. Very overtly obvious. So it seems accurate to say bucks are leaving scent and does are just getting scent. Gotcha. They're, they're, they're getting information. That seems accurate, but we don't know that for sure.
1: Um. To kind of and as
0: far as timing, there and, and Lindsey Thomas is big on this too. Lindsey's a good guy. Uh, you mentioned you had him on. Uh, tons of deer fitted with radio collars in the past and GPS collars now. And, and guys and gals, I mean, moon, this, that, the other, a lot of morphine. Here's what deer do they, they move during the night, some and then about dawn, they move more and then they calm down, and then about dusk, they move more and they go on. We all want to be so different and, and you will. I'm here in the Midwest where fronts may be a little stronger and we're getting a massive cold front. And here's what I see. If the temperatures get, it, when it's cold outside, we're in the winter here and it's cold outside, temperatures get 10%, not 10 degrees, 10% colder than normal, then I'm probably gonna have a later morning movement because bucks are moving in that sunshine, deer moving in sunshine to warm up a little bit. And if it's 10 degrees warmer than normal, in the early season, they're probably moving a little later because it's just doggone hot to get up and move around. But it's still crepuscular or daylight and dark centric. And and there's all these reasons why people say, well, they can't see the light. And I'm thinking, goodness gracious, I've jumped deer late at night, walking back here with my stand. I've never heard one run into a tree yet. Dark in the moon, full of dark. <laughs> I've never heard one run into a tree. Yeah. In, decades of being a deer biologist and more decades of being a hunter so light's not the issue right and they run in midday just fine they can shut their peoples down they're not running in trees in the midday so that right. you know, that's all nonsense uh if you think about it in the morning when the sun's just coming up or the temperature's changing it, where the sun's hitting there's thermal energy and the thermals hot air rises cold air sinks this is you know like Newton's third law, you can't be violated. Hot air rises, cold air sinks. So you got places that are warming up, places are still cool, and the wind is swirling. And that gives a deer the ability to smell predators 360 degrees. And midday, the winds usually go in one direction. So they only smell predators from one direction. And then in the afternoon, in the evening, when the sun's going down, the shade's been under this tree longer, and this place is still getting a little sun the air is churning again. And you get defense from predators from 360 degrees. And so I, I my theory, Grant Wood's theory is that's why deer are so crepuscular. And when you, if you're an elk hunter, if you go elk hunting, the elk are really aren't that smart. They're just, their nose is huge. Mm. And elk tend to be in mountains. So the thermals are really strong. And it's just tough to beat the thermals in the mountains. Flatland elk are pretty easy to hunt. Flatland whitetails are easier to hunt, especially flatland whitetails where it's open. Because if you think about this, if you're hunting in thick timber, pine plantation, oaks, whatever, if you think about a trout stream up above Wahala, South Carolina, Chattanooga, whichever one you're fishing up there. A good trout stream's got eddies and rocks and trees down, pool eddy, pool eddy, pool eddy. That's good trout habitat. Well, that's what the wind does when it's blowing through a forest. It hits a big tree, it goes around, creates a vacuum, causes a little eddy. Your scent's just going everywhere. And I test that a lot. Go go to Walmart. I call it Stuff Mart. Get you a bubble gun. Put two AA batteries in there. Kids are lazy anymore. We used to blow bubbles. Now they squeeze the trigger and get a bunch of bubbles. (laughs) Bubbles go really far in the wind, in the timber. See, and you see a bubble. Well, the wind's that way, and it hits a tree, and it goes this way, and it goes up, and it goes down. All of a sudden that's behind you. You got very little chances of bow hunter getting deer within range there. Yeah. But when you got an open area, a really thin pine stand like a quail stand, a basal feet of 60, 60 basal feet per square acre, or out western Kansas on the plains. I looked like a great hunter in western Kansas. Because you know you know the wind direction and it does not change. And you can spot and stock deer with ease out there. I'm a I'm a heck of a hunter in those situations.
1: <laughs> so you brought the moon up, and that was one of my <clears throat> talking points. I, I have my thoughts on the moon. The moon is um. So so based on that, the moon, barometric pressure, temperatures, you know, the lunar cycle, all that stuff. I mean, I, I you know, I I'm primarily consume science. You know, dat, data backed research. And then just, I mean, I, it's like, I, and I'm no biologist, but I, I do feel like I see a different side of whitetails than some hunters. And that's just simply because of where I hunt. It's a product of where I hunt. And in South Carolina, I can start hunting in August. So I do. And I hunt in August. And then some hunting that summer scale. I mean, everyone knows that. And so I see the shift on the stand of the summer schedule and then shifting from the human pressure that people will dub the October lull as if deer are doing something different, but they're, you know, they're responding to our pressure. Do you feel like there's any type of correlation between deer movement and weather, the moon, barometric pressure, anything?
0: Well, let me embarrass myself. When I was in grad school, poor starving graduate student, I had all this data. I I, I used to manage the deer herd at IMAX, now Alcoa, just out of Goose Creek, South Carolina, or about 17 miles out of Charleston. Six, used to be 6,000 acres. I think they saw off the land, so I had to harvest all deer, some pollution stuff, whatever. Uh, we'd harvest 100 plus deer a year, collected all kinds of data, and I thought I knew something. And I had PhD classes in regression and, you know, pretty good with stats. So I thought, well, I got this whip. And I figured it out, quote unquote, and I used to publish the DAI, Deer Activity Index. And deer and deer hunting would sell them. You know, I I don't remember making a few thousand dollars as a grad student, I was getting rich, man. I was slamming it down and thought I knew what I was doing. And the doggone GPS collars come out where we could get more accurate data than observation data. And I had to pull that calendar off the market because I realized I had no idea what I was talking about. And it's like the Texans say, I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't have believed it. Yeah. And my stats were obviously embarrassingly biased by what I thought I was seeing. And the GPS collars just proved me wrong. And then a little later on, my good friend, University of Georgia, Carl Miller, Dr. Carl Miller. And I think I'm going from memory. I think there's 14 of us put together all the fetal data we collected. And I do remember this number. It was over 14,000 data points from the north to the south. I was the guy who provided all data for South Carolina. Big data set. 14,000 is a lot. Wild, free ranging deer. Yes, were it is. That have been collected.
1: Yes, it is.
0: And, and we ran all that against the moon. And was gonna figure out the moon. Boy, the moon controls the rut. We're gonna figure this out. We got the biggest data set known to mankind at that time. We are gonna nail this. And what we nailed is there is zero relationship between the moon and when deer breed. The regression line could not be flatter. And a flat line in stats means no relationship, no upward trend, no downward trend, just zero relationship. And it was very embarrassing. We put all this work and time and stats in there and there was zero relationship. Zero. Now, I think we will see this. When it's, a, you know, speaking of rut, uh, you know that based on conception date data from fetuses, not the barbershop talk. Uh, and you don't see a lot of deer. You're thinking, well, the rut's grown this year. And your buddy down the road happened to be where the receptive does were. And he watched chasing all day long, killed a big buck. And he's, man, it's the best rut I've had in five years. And two miles away, the guy says, this is the worst rut I've had in five years. Well, I ain't seen nothing. If you're not where the action is in a pretty small area during the rut, which it is a small area, you're going to think, well, the ball are just wrong. But the rut happens based on conception date data. Based on this, you know, conception date data, the rut happens in the same place, the same time, every year, like within a day. It's very accurate at the peak of the rut, peak of breeding. And weather doesn't really change it. What would change that is a drastic shift in food resources, deer getting healthier or not as healthy, or the adult sex ratio. There's not as many does to breed or there's more does to breed per buck. That can shift it slightly, but it's not what a lot of publications.
1: Yes, sir. One, it's amazing what has changed and what has been learned about whitetails over the past 20, 20, 25 years. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's content like yours that's readily available to the public. I mean, it's it's truly fascinating. Um, I I just forgot what I was about to say. Oh. After uh, seven, I think it's 17 seasons at our farm that we've been recording data, everything, and we run the stats every year as far as you know, the moon phase, you know, as you know, we, we've got our observational data, we've got a harvest data. And for for us on our property, there's there's been no correlation between moon phase or anything or temperature. That's the other thing. I just I think people get caught up in what they see on the stand what their friends see on the stand and what the trail cameras see. I, I hear so much about trail cameras, you know, trail cameras are great, but people think that, you know, whatever the camera captures is what's happening in the local herd. And it's just a very small fraction. Well, you know, let
0: always be careful there. Uh, trail cameras are a valid tool. Oh, they, uh, they, they
1: are. But I mean,
0: if you use them, I mean, if you got two cameras out, it's probably happenstance. If you've got, 50 out, you're probably getting a pretty good data set, and you've noticed this. You've been hunting in South Carolina, and you're going, boy, it's kind of slow. I'm not seeing much. All of a sudden, you hear a shot, and then the next five minutes, you're 10 shots. You haven't heard a shot all morning, and a five-minute period of time, you're 10 shots. Clearly, the deer were on their feet at that time. Right. Clearly, they were moving. This happens. Every hunter that's had many seasons under his belt, him or her, know this, so there are periods. So there was a really interesting discussion debate whatever recently uh marjorie's close friend of mine and the researchers at mississippi state university are close friends of mine and they have very well published at pretty adamantly there is no relationship between the moon on this matters we got the data blah 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 and then and mark got face to face and mark is really big on there is we can tweak this this that the other and the gist of their gentleman discussion was that mark Runs a lot of show cameras, I think 300 or something like that. I mean, a lot. It's That's a lot. study in itself. That's a lot,
1: yeah. Yes, sir. And
0: Mark's a smart guy. I know Mark Wells. Mark's a smart guy, and he's a he's a student of deer. So what Mark is looking for is that deer moving five minutes before dark so I maybe get a shot right after dark. About the closest I ever see GPS collar set is 15 minutes, which makes a world of difference to deer hunting. Five minutes before dark, five minutes after dark is the difference between tag soup and and tenderloin. And and I think once they calm down, you can tell when you watch it, they're kind of all buffed up, you know. And and once they calm down, realize we're all on the same team, uh, they really got along well. And I think they probably will end up agreeing doing some research together. And so it's real simple. There's a battery on a GPS collar, and, you know, it can only weigh so much. You can't have deer walking around with a 12-volt battery on their neck all day. So you can only get so many data readings. So the, the more frequently you have that collar collect data, the shorter the battery life's going to be. So researchers tend to put it once a day if they just want to know the home range or during the rut. They might put it there 15 minutes. Mark's looking at every minute. So, it's just, they're not comparing apples to apples, yeah. myself included. So, I, I do think there are differences, but you got to be a pretty serious hunter to tease these out. you got to be a student of the deer. That's right. And I'm just looking for days, and, and often, I mean, I'm hunting 50 yards from a bedding area. you, you got to be quiet going in there, and you're not eating a Snickers bar or on your phone the whole time. I mean, because I know my my name gets pressured a lot. My family, my employees, whatever, and the deer ain't prancing around in the middle of the day a whole lot. So I'm sneaking in with the wind in my favor. There are days I absolutely refuse to hunt, or I'm just on a big, you know, uh, utility easement with my glasses, looking downrange. I'm not going anywhere sensitive where I might alert deer. And the most important thing hunters can do, which is tough in the South, seasons are so long. Blah 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 blah. They're hunting over bait, whatever. This is a, if you're a serious buck hunter, the one thing you don't want to do is alert deer, because deer have memory. And this has been published by uh, Auburn University, pretty big study. Lindsey Thomas writes about it a lot, but you don't want to alert deer. So if you're hunting over bait, and this research has been done, bait's, bait's about the quickest way to drive deer nocturnal. Probably, probably the worst thing you do as a hunter because you know you go there and put your bait out and it's attracting coons and coyotes you mm-hmm. see these on your trail cam all the time and you're going there but there's not much happening at night so that's when the, the deer that you know are mature enough to avoid a few predators they go at night not everyone if they're being honest will say most of my trail camera pictures that are feeder are at night that's true. everyone will say that yeah but when you're hunting 50 yards off a bed and area off a little food plot or clear cut or you cut some trees or whatever uh the deer don't necessarily associate that with danger conditioning yeah. and you can condition deer the other way i call this the ice cream truck theory but it's no longer theory i've had tons and tons of clients do this it comes from south texas but if you think of pavlov's dog pavlov's german scientist back in the day or european scientist and he fed dogs every day at a certain time and one day he didn't feed them you know and they salivated and bit him because they didn't feed him stuff like that i'll tease them up to my uh in Texas, they ride around on these ranches. They feed a lot, but there's very low hunting pressure. Nothing compared to the South. You may have 10,000 acre ranch and four people hunting. Ooh. And so there's feeders that don't get hunted all year long and feeders get hunted once. Of course, the deer come there in their daylight. They do not associate it with danger.
1: Yeah.
0: In the South, someone puts corn pile out, you bet your bottom they're hunting it, right? You got a ladder stand 50 yards away or blind 50 yards away. <laughs> and deer learn to associate that with danger. And there's so much feed poured out in South Carolina. It's sinful. How many hungry kids we got in the world, and we're spending all this money on pouring corn on the ground to track the deer, not counting the disease transmission and others other bad things about this. So, anyway, if you want, if you're a serious big buck hunter, you're probably not using bait.
1: Yeah, I one of my favorite tactics, um, especially early season, like in August or early September, and how I killed the, the buck this year. Actually, the past four years, it's been um, we've been slowly diversifying our pine farm because that's mm-hmm. we do have some, you know, row crops that, that we lease out to a farmer. But it's mostly it's a pine. pine it's a pine farm is um, diversified the the age class pine trees. And you got a pine thicket that's a deer bedding site and you've got the thinned, exposed basal air, you know, exposed uh. Mature pine stand that gets sunlight. We we burn it every three years or so. And they're coming off the ag fields or the food plots, way off in the distance, far away. And they're come, and then they're slowly milling through those those uh, you know burned woods, mm-hmm. going and I'm right on top of that, right on top of the mm-hmm. edge of that of that pine thick. And that's and that's how um, that's my favorite way of killing a buck. Speaking of bucks, I asked this question. Pretty much every biologist I can get my hands on because I like because I, I like the question. And it and and the ultimate question is really something else. What do you feel? And there's no there's no study on this to my knowledge, but what do you feel like is the average lifespan of a white-tailed buck in the southeast? Of course, I'm saying the southeast, and there's a big, wide range. Lots of very
0: ha- property to property. That, that's trigger management. So without the 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 number one source of mortality for deer is that, you know, lead.
1: Okay.
0: about 3000 feet a second. That's number one by far, not coyotes, not roadkill hunter kill. There's some others that are significant, but they're not the same as hunter kill. So I have clients, I'm in South Carolina frequently. I have clients that manage for, you know, they harvest 150 inch deer every year in South Carolina, where people say it can't be done every year, year after year after year. Uh, And they're obviously letting their deer get older. So we have a lot of deer that are five, six years old on those properties, but they're rare. And so it just totally depends on the property. In the mountains, I like, you know, I schooled at Clemson, go up and hunt public land in the mountains. There's some old deer up there because you got legs on you and some lungs, you can get in there where there's very little hunting pressure.
1: Yeah.
0: Now it's tough to pattern a deer. It's pretty homogenous habitat. It's steep, the wind swirls like crazy, but there's sure enough some old deer up there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah I've, that's totally dependent on trigger management
1: that makes sense i just i i guess i just tend to think that like in my area kind of we're just above the low country area who would you call it um there's so much hunting pressure i don't know i i just don't i, I don't feel like bucks are Living as long as maybe some people think that maybe it's a shorter lifespan, but I just, you know.
0: No, it's I not. Know. I promise you, it's not about lifespan. There's no funky disease. It's, it's, it's not that. They die because a hunter killed them.
1: It's not. Is the, are the summers in. in it's not
0: in, the weather, sir.
1: It is. I, not, have
0: I mean, farms it, in South Carolina growing six, seven, eight year old bucks.
1: So it's the hunters.
0: It's the hunters. I did my PhD work down at UMSE, South Carolina. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um,
1: I, I, I know that that's a,
0: where there were several plantations letting deer get older back then it was three. If you killed a three-year-old buck, you're a big guy on campus, but these couple of plantations were letting deer get older. And I had all kinds of mature deer on my campus. I was doing rub behavior on that one. It, it's honey. Yeah. It's honey and pressure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I like that answer. Um, well, I know you got to go. So I'll start to wrap this up. I've got three questions that I ask every guest. Mm-hmm. Although I got to ask you one question. And know, I've read two books by Valerius Geist. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know, you know, Dr. Valerius Geist. I think, I think he passed away. Um, he yeah. Yeah. Maybe the summer of 2020 or I think it was that anyways, do you subscribe to his theory about mule deer? How mule deer? I think if I have it right, there was a shift in white tails. It might have been it was weather related, and the white tails mixed in with the black tails
0: out west. Well, there's a zone. I mean, this is known. This is not theory. It's known.
1: That is uh, is there's, that there's a
0: zone of hybridization. Okay. Think West Texas, West Oklahoma, Western Kansas, Nebraska. Just you know, it varies back and forth a little bit, but that zone there is where whitetails and muleys really meet, and it goes further west up some of the river drains, powder river drain, places like that, and whitetail bucks are much more aggressive, so they hybridize, and it's like always, I forget to stab, but 90 plus percent will be a whitetail male and a mule deer doe, mm. and all hunters think, well, big stud mule deer, he's going to breed all the whitetail does, but it's just the opposite. Whitetails are more aggressive behavior, and, and they do most of the breeding, and the F1 hybrid, you can tell not by the rack. That can be deceiving on both sides of that point. But the tarsal gland is a certain length for whitetails and a certain length for mule deer. And the hybrids are right in between. Gotcha. Awesome. Most accurate way short of genetics to identify that. And it's been going on. And as man has developed these river bottoms, planted Alpha, alpha done things, and made more favorable whitetail habitat, the whitetails simply, they're just more adaptive. They just outcompete the mule deer in those areas. But once you get 500 feet above the creek bottom or so, and it's all sagebrush, you don't ever see a whitetail up there and that's all mule deer habitat. You're not seeing a whitetail 11,000 feet on top of Rocky Mountain. You're just not yeah. going to do that. Yeah. But there is a zone of hybridization. And Val was, I, I, I've had many scientific meetings with Dr. Geis. He was a brilliant man. Brilliant. I learned a lot from him. But he did not mind throwing his theories out there. I, you know, but that that
1: that's that's what's so intriguing about him because he, he's very, he, you're right. And that's why I loved, uh, especially Whitetail Tracks. That's one of my favorite books that he yeah. uh, put so out that there. One last thing
0: about Val, because I think a lot of people don't get this, but like Aldo Leopold changed his mind on several things as he learned more. People that don't change their mind are not learning. And Val was very against, very protective of wolves until he retired to Vancouver Island and him and his wife were walking and got attacked or, or at least surrounded by wolves a couple of times and feared for their lives literally. And he become a strong rider and proponent in his last two years of wolf harvest so wolves would know to fear man. And we see this with grizzly bears of British Columbia in several places where these animals don't have a fear for man; they can become dangerous. That's right.
1: Absolutely. That's right. I like that. Um, he, 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 I, I, I would uh, implore everyone to check out Dr. Valeris Geist. Very good um, biologist and material that he's published out there. All right, the three last questions. I know, I know, you need to go. Again, I ask every guest these three questions. All right, the first one is, um, could you suggest um, some type of media content for our audience? Um, Maybe a book, um, something that you just feel like a hunter or a conservationist should have on their shelf, a book, publication, something that you you feel like is really hits home to you and people need to consume?
0: Yeah, so that's going to depend on the information and the maturity of that land manager hunter or whatever. If you're newer to the sport or managing land, you may want to start with Aldo Leopold's a Sand County Almanac. I, I used to make all of my students and interns read that, and some of them just aren't that serious anymore to be candid. When I was a student at the University of Georgia, I mean, you read that and knew that heart to heart. That was just, you know, you just had to do that. Great book, A Sand County on that by Aldo Leopold. Um, Aldo's all, again, I mentioned also a guy that changed his mind he learned more, brilliant guy. The first guy that was ever had the title Wildlife biologist at a university in America, first professor of wildlife, uh, brilliant writer, good read, a sand county on that. That's kind of a good starter. It's uh, great read. I believe, yeah, great read. I I am I I'm 61. I had a blessed career and I believe for conservation, I think we're all conservationists, and I believe the whole foundation, the foundation for conservation, deer work, growing pine trees, there's three big cycles that control our planet. That's the water cycle, the air cycle, and the nutrient cycle. We're all dependent on that every day. These are cycles. You're not taught in deer biology. You're you're taught this in ecology, if you're lucky, if you go to a really good school, and no... Cycles are all dependent on the soil. And we've depleted our soil. In South Carolina, the average soil loss statewide is 17 inches. 17 inches got washed out to the Atlantic Ocean during the cotton farming days. I'm not mad at cotton farmers. They didn't know what they're doing. Let's get off this blaming our past, right? Okay, we got to live in the current. But we can rebuild soil. And I was taught in schools as soil scientists or a soil scientists taught me it takes a thousand years to build an inch of soil. That's probably true if we're talking about weathering rock and turning it into soil. But if you do no-till and good crop rotation and the six principles of soil health, I'm building about a quarter inch a year. It's faster than glaciers, right? I mean, it's a quarter inch a year, it's awesome. But all cycles, antlers, everything comes from the soil. And it's how we take care of our soil that's going to determine how fast pine trees grow. That's called side index. And for years, people were taught that they were just, well, you bought the land, that's your side index, that's just what it is. That's absolutely not true. How we manage the soil and the plant communities we have and how we treat that like I'm mean, gonna bet you're usually burning in February, March, and you absolutely need to be doing growing season burns. Unequivocally. If your pines are not being grown during the growing season, your deer habitats nowhere close to what it could be. Number one thing yeah. I prescribe in the South is a growing season burn.
1: That's been on my that's been on my agenda for, for a couple of years. Um, to do one, but it's just it it, it, it timing force. But we've got an event coming up at our farm next August, and mm-hmm. it's gonna happen and we're gonna do well, it.
0: Well, maybe it will Maybe it will. I mean, it's all weather dependent, right? You guys oh, have day in the or south. My tra- or my tractor cold not breaking down through and the humidity drops. That's what you That's have right. to have. A cold front comes through and the humidity drops. And on those days, you're gonna be dropping a match.
1: That's right. All right, second to last question. Um, what is your just favorite wild game dish. It doesn't have to be venison. Just something that, let's say you're going on a on a two-week trip in Europe. You're coming home. You're ready for some good home cooking. Just something that just puts a smile on your face that it doesn't have to be the the most elaborate recipe. Just something you just yeah. look forward to.
0: Well, I, I love crappie. I love catching them. I love eating them. And, but good. my wife makes a dish called venison pozzoli. Hmm. That's just pretty easy to make, and for me, I really enjoy it. I will share with you, my, my wife's father is older, and so she spends a lot of time in North Carolina, and I take two pounds of ham. this is really quick, two pounds of hamburger, and I raid the pantry, a can of green beans, can of black-eyed peas, some broccoli, I'll put four different vegetables in there. I brown the hamburger meat in an instapot. If Men, if you're listening and you cook like I do some, you need to listen. So I get one pot dirty. I put about a quarter (laughs) inch of a slab of butter in the bottom. I brown my two pounds of hamburger meat in there. There's no grease because it's venison. And then I just pour these cans of frozen veggies in there and the ice or water is all the moisture I need. I don't add any other moisture. I hit the insta button for saute for six minutes and that feeds me about five days. And it's very, I get all my veggies and if you're serious and if you want to eat healthy, I've had two kidney transplants. If you want to eat healthy, uh, you want to eat wild game because they're very picky and they're eating all different plant species if they're from good habitat. And that will have a much higher mineral content than any cow ever got of a feedlot. And being a transplant patient, I go to the Mayo Clinic once a year for my checkup and I meet with the dietitian for 30 years now and ask me, hey, Grant, why do you eat them? I tell them wild venison and they get all happy. Because there can be no no chance of a feedlot beef being as healthy as wild venison because they don't have that diversity in their diet.
1: That that right there is probably the most that's what people need to hear. I mean, that, that yeah, that is just just clean, healthy eating and that and that's a great dish. That, that, that's a great and that's why I asked that question, because you know I, you don't have to eat, you know, a deer burger or, or venison tacos. It didn't have to be the same three dishes. I mean, that's, there's all kinds of things you can do. Yeah. All right. Last question. And the most important, um, which kind of wraps up, uh, the three focals of focal points, Southeast whitetail, which is habitat conservation and venison. So last question, what do you feel like Dr. Woods is, in your professional opinion, um, the most, The most important conservation issue in the southeast right now that it doesn't have to be related to whitetails something that should be on people's radars um you know people throw around the word conservation a lot and some people really get into and some people just kind of throw it around but something you feel like in the southeast is a real conservation issue right now that doesn't matter if you hunt public land private land should be on someone's radar
0: I think you see it every day out your window when you're driving somewhere and it's the vast amount of erosion which didn't get talked about in Southeast, see all that red clay. And again, I I just gave this presentation for a big land trust group in the Southeast last week. I just flew down there last week and spoke at a large meeting, a lot of forest service people there. And again, all conservation, all conservation starts with the soil, clean water, clean air, the nutrient cycle, it all starts with the soil. Soil seems boring to a lot of my colleagues, but it all starts in the soil. And we can all do a better job imaging soil. And one of my colleagues in the farming world says, and I think he's accurate, none of us alive today have ever seen anything but degraded soil. There's no mm-hmm. virgin soil left out there. We're all and we've accepted this degraded soil. And I'll end with this. Maybe is hopefully something that will open some eyes or think about this from a deer point of view and a human health point of view. All the childhood diseases we have now that none of us heard of when I was a kid, right? Uh, are linked, we think now, to low nutrition, even though they're eating their broccoli every day. And that's because uh, there's oranges now that have no vitamin C in them because of depleted soil. Uh, iron on average in the United States has, or iron, I'm sorry, spinach has 40% less iron than it did two decades ago. Mm-hmm. Carrots don't have near the vitamins in it. And this is simply because of depleted soil. Think what that's doing for deer. The second most important thing in Southeast is the most unpopular thing. So I'm glad I'm leaving. Is you need to start thinking about CWD because it is coming. It is a real disease. Yeah. It can reduce deer herd significantly. And y'all need to start minding your manners about all this feeding and transporting deer and doing stuff. CWD is coming. It is. You need to know that. You need to believe it. Absolutely. I live in a CWD zone, folks. I'm living in it. I live in one.
1: Well, Dr. Woods. Thank you for your time. This has been a real treat for me. Uh, it's a student of the game. Um, thank you very much. Where can people find you?
0: I just search on Growing Deer. We're on a lot of different platforms. If you just Google Growing Deer, you'll find us.
1: Growing Deer and TVs go on.
0: Go to Clemson Tigers.
1: <laughs> you got a Clemson fan?
0: I'm a Dabo Sweeney fan. I think he's a good man. I think he treats his players well. I'm a Dabo fan. I'm not a big – I went to University of Georgia and Clemson. I only went to one college football game in my whole career. So, I'm not a big football fan. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Dabo Sweeney fan because I think he tells the truth.
1: Yeah, he's – I mean, whether someone's a Clemson fan or not, he's one of the better coaches. Um, You might not like the team – just because you're you, because your favorite team plays Clemson, sure. but he's one of the good guys out there for sure. Yeah, you know, growing deer TV can I think I think found on pretty much every social media platform. Great content, y'all put a video out every single week. Um
0: for twelve years, we've never missed a week and never shown a repeat episode. That's one thing I'm proud of.
1: It, it it's incredible, and and that's why I wanted to have you on uh, because. What better way? I mean, I've I've said this before many times on this podcast, but what better what better way to learn about the animal, the species that you're pursuing, how to hunt them, and also how to improve the habitat than a wildlife biologist? I mean, they're
0: well. I told, think it's important to say there's two. There's researchers, Dr. Carl Miller and guys at MSU. They're brilliant. They're great. There's other universities too. Uh, and there's practitioners. And long ago, I left the university system. One of my good friends, Dr. Craig Harper, would be a great guest for you. Craig and I went to Clemson together, uh, is a, at the university, but is a good practitioner. He's out in the field a lot. He is yes, real work. He's got some calluses on his hands. So <laughs> most good ideas come from practitioners, and then universities hear about them and verify them or refine them or improve them or whatever. That's kind of system in ag and wildlife, in business, whatever. Uh, so always be listening to the practitioners that are having success because they they figured out something that works. That's right.
1: That's right. Well, thank you again. This has been a real treat for me and um, I appreciate it. Thank you very much
0: for coming on. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate it as well.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for your time. And uh, we will talk with you all next week. Thanks for listening.